Before we get started, let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your word, and I pray that it won't be to me that the glory is given, but to you. Lord, just help me to focus and to concentrate, to proclaim your word the way you want it to be proclaimed. And Lord, I pray for the hearts of those who hear, that you might tenderize them and soften them. Lord, that the words I speak will be your words, carried along by your Holy Spirit, implanted into their hearts by a work of you. Lord, as we talk about this difficult topic, just give us courage to take it and to preach it and to live it out and to apply fearless evangelism to the world at large. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my goal today, being that Jack is out of town, is to try to do a good job. I know it must be difficult for Jack to concede his pulpit, so the, the goal is very simple, is to not to present the worst sermon you've ever heard. And Tim Adams was very gracious. He came after me after the first service and told me that wasn't the worst sermon that he ever heard. So... <laughs> Uh, apparently, I seem to be succeeding at something, and something's going right in my life. But I do remember the worst sermon that I ever heard. It, was in, uh, it wasn't because people were stumbling over their speech or they were really embarrassing themselves, but because the guy twisted the Word of God to say something that it didn't really say. I was going to a very large church in Kansas City. I came back for a weekend to attend there since I attended there the summer before. And the guy was speaking on evangelism. Now, normally when you hear the word evangelism or if you hear somebody who's going to be preaching on prayer, the instant response is to just kind of cower, right? Oh no, prepare to be beaten. He's talking about evangelism. And so this guy started off simply enough where he talked about uh, a story where a guy went out to share his faith on the Berkeley campus and he went to share his faith and was talking with a lady, and they were in the midst of a heated exchange. And in the middle of the exchange, he had a little epiphany. He said, you know what? I don't like doing this. She, don't, she doesn't like doing this, so let's just stop. And what he proceeded to do was to make a case against initiative evangelism that to approach people and tell them that they need to repent and to confront people on their sins and tell them that they need to turn away from their wicked ways or pay the consequences in hell was somehow unloving and manipulative. He quoted from the message from Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians talking about how Paul was gentle and loving, implying that anyone who shares their faith in a park or on the street corner is somehow not doing that. And his whole thesis was to be just a good person. And when people ask you, why are you such a good person, to share the gospel with them at that point. And the collective reaction of the audience was, I thought we were going to be convicted today. But what he did was he mangled the word of God. Just ask Paul. He was tactful, gracious, and gentle. But he didn't wait for people to talk to him. He was on the street corners and the synagogues, boldly proclaiming the word of God and the message of repentance. People tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. They tortured him. They slandered him. They scorned him. That was what the reaction was. See, we live in a day and age where dogmatic Christianity is public enemy number one. Just like dogmatic Islam, right? You look at John Lennon's anthem of the age, 
that was sung by the masses at the closing ceremonies in the Atlantic Olympics in 1996, you read, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. In John Lennon's utopia, there is no distinction between any religion. We all worship the same God and shame on those people who tell us otherwise. We live in a politically correct society that has silenced Christians with words like, you know what, religion is a personal thing. I'll hold my views and you hold your views. You allow me to be the sovereign king over my own life and I'll let God be the sovereign king over yours, right? And the result is we have been intimidated into silence. Yet we see from the scriptures that there is a strong evangelism mandate. That the reason why we are here on earth is to make disciples. Well, you know, what about uh, learning about God's word? We're going to learn about God's word in heaven, right? We're going to have great worship and fellowship in heaven. It's going to be perfect. The one thing that we won't be able to do in heaven that we can do here on earth is share our faith, right? Because there's going to be no non-Christians in heaven. That's obvious. So in light of the fact that there is a firm mandate to share our our faith and that we're doing so in a hostile world, the natural reaction is fear. The reason why most people don't share their faith is because they are afraid. Yet what the world has forbidden us to do, God commands us to do. And we must go out in the spirit of the Apostle Peter and obey God rather than men. And so today, we are going to look at five commands to bolster our boldness in evangelism so that we might glorify God with a proper proclamation of of the coming King. And the principles are from Matthew 10, 24 through 33. 24 through 33. The first one is, do not expect a better reception than our master. Possess an eternal perspective. Fear God more than people. Trust in God's providential care and minister in light of judgment. For those of you who didn't catch it, it's on the overhead over there. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, and read along with me. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough... For the disciple, that he has become as his teacher and a slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are more value than the sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father 
who is in heaven. Now, I remember going to Myrtle Beach for a summer mission project. And Myrtle Beach is a very interesting place. Myrtle Beach is what is known as the Redneck Riviera, where southern kids, southern boys from all across the south get into, you know, wear their Wranglers or cowboy hats or cowboy boots, hop into a jacked-up Ford Ranger pickup with a Confederate flag on one side and a Ford flag on the other, listen to Alabama and Garth Brooks, and go down, you know, to Myrtle Beach to have a good time, looking for alcohol, booze, partying, and that whole pagan high school scene. And what's interesting is the last thing that these people want is some Bible thumper spoiling their good time, talking about how they shouldn't do the things that they saved up for months to do. And so here we are, standing on the beach, and we are going to be unleashed to this angry mob by these people trying to train us to share our faith, and we're all just kind of writhing our hands, and they're giving a pep talk. And the intimidating thing is, when you share your faith at work or with your family, people have to be nice to you, right? They're not going to explode on you or get angry because they have to work with you the next day. But it's very different when they'll never see you again. That's where their teeth and their fangs just jet out and they just attack you. The disciples were in a very similar position. They were being commissioned by Jesus to go out into the world. Looking at Matthew 9:35, we read this. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest." Amazing thing happens. An amazing thing happens when Jesus prays. You know what that is? They get answered. Every single prayer that Jesus ever has will get answered. In this case, how did the Lord answer it? We see in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, that he summoned the 12 disciples. The workers he was going to send into the harvest were the 12 disciples. And what he did was he gave them the ability to heal and to cast out demons. And he told them, Proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. Now, when he says the kingdom of God is near, what he means is that Christ is coming back. God is coming back. He's going to mediate justice. He's going to rule this world. And only those who repent and place their faith in him will inherit that kingdom. That's it. So the command and the mandate is clear. And he tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel. But later on, we see little windows where he begins to mention in verse 18, that they will speak to the rulers of the Gentiles. And in verse 23, he's going to talk about how we are to continue to fulfill this command until he comes back. So where he starts off narrow in scope, later on in the discourse, he widens it to include us. That we are the inheritors of this commandment. That we are to proclaim this faithfully until he comes back. And that's why Matthew 18 through 20 says, Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them and then teaching them to obey all the commanded you until the end of the age. We do this until he comes back, then we have permission to stop. And so all these commands that he gives here, these five principles that we see here, all apply to us today as we have a mandate 
to proclaim the gospel. So Jesus, being our master shepherd, sensing their fear and our fear, has given us these words in Matthew 24 to 33 to encourage us and to inspire us to obey. The first one, the first command is do not expect a better reception than our master. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he becomes as his teacher, and a slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? See, we need to realize our proper place. Now, you see two classes of people here, right? You see the teacher, and then you see the disciples. You see the master, and then you see the servant, right? Now, if the merry band of disciples were to follow their teacher around, and the teacher was to be invited for a meal, the disciple did not presume the place of honor, right? That was rightfully given to the teacher. It was not the master who worked in the hot sun, breaking sod, planting seeds, weeding dirt. It was the slaves, right? So whatever reception that Jesus gets, we should expect far worse. It's interesting. Today we have the Lakers game, right? Lakers and Sacramento Kings. Now the Sacramento Kings will be, bull, will be booed today, right? They'll be made fun of by the fans. But who's going to get the most persecution? Whose life is going to be in greatest danger? You know what it is? It's the idiot Sacramento Kings fan who wears a jersey to the game. <laughs> right? Remember a couple of years ago when some Pittsburgh Steelers guy wore a as Pittsburgh Steelers jersey went to the Raiders game and got beat up. See, that's because if they they won't they have reverence and respect for the master, but not the servant. You can pick on the servant, but not necessarily the master. But what did they do to Jesus? Right? What did they do to him? They persecuted him. They slandered him. They ultimately murdered him. Now it's interesting. According to church tradition, Peter when he was tried and found guilty of blasphemy against the emperor, was in Rome. And they were about to crucify him, but he begged and pleaded for them to stop. Because he did not consider himself worthy to die like his master. He implored them to turn the cross upside down because he was not worthy to suffer like Jesus suffered. He recognized this. See, Jesus was slandered. They called him Beelzebul. Now that literally means Lord of the Flies. Later on, it was morphed into Lord of the Dung, a far cry from the King of Kings, right? But then it became symbolic of all of the pagan deities and demons. In fact, it became the name of the chief pagan demon. It's a synonym for Satan. Now talk about the ultimate slander. The only man who had never sinned, who was in perfect communion and fellowship with God throughout his entire earthly existence was deemed by others Satan. Now, if they call Jesus, our Master and our Lord, Satan, what do you think they're going to call us? Not only did they reject him as their king, they called him the general of the legions of darkness the captain of the forces of evil. They slandered him. And that type of treatment is what we should expect. 
See, we live in a society where Christianity is very tolerated. But if you go to Sudan or you go to Indonesia, that's not the case. You have people regularly dying and being martyred for their faith. But it's all the same planet. It's all the same world, right? You look in John 15, 19, it says this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates Christians. It doesn't matter if you're in Sudan. It doesn't matter if you're in Indonesia. It doesn't matter if you're in America. The world hates you. Because you are of Christ. And if Christ were to come back, they'd kill him all over again. But because they don't have Christ, they have you. So we have to ask ourselves, why are we not suffering like the early Christians? Why are we not suffering like Christ? Why are we not suffering like the Christians in Sudan or Indonesia? The reason why is because we are not stepping out and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. For several years, the Romans left Christians alone, practicing toleration as they saw themselves as just a small sect of Judaism. But the more they evangelized, the more they aggressively sought to bring people to repentance, the more they saw them as a threat to the Roman societal structure as they were dividing families, as they were causing people to reject the pagan gods and not to worship the emperor, which was seen as an act of treason. As Jesus states in 1034, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. J.C. Ryle notes, If we let the world alone, it will probably let us alone. But if we try to do its spiritual good, it will hate us as it did our master. When we go to this politically correct society and we tell people that God is coming back and he will do justice to all those who don't bow the knee before him, for those who have not embraced the lordship of Jesus Christ alone, for those who have not trusted in his provision on the cross to be saved by faith, for those who are trusting in their words or worshiping another God or denying the, the Trinity who are worshiping Allah, for those who just don't really know God, for those people who think they're good people and by virtue of that they're going to heaven, they will be condemned. That is isn't a very offensive statement. Why do you think they killed Jesus? Because he was just being a nice guy? He was, right? They didn't kill Jesus because he was minding his own business. They killed Jesus because he was obedient to his father and the reaction which you expect from the world is that they will persecute us because they hate us. And if you're not being persecuted, there's probably something wrong. And really, how many of us have really been persecuted? Have any of you ever got death threats or beaten up? I mean, we may have been yelled at. We may have had people not like us anymore. We may have had people disassociate themselves with us or think we're weird. But that's it. The persecution we undergo right now is nothing compared to the hatred that the world truly has for us. So the first command we need to do is we need to realize that we are to not expect a better reception than our master. If he suffered, we should suffer too. The next commandment is to possess an eternal perspective. Therefore, do not fear them. This is 26 and 27. 
Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. We will be vindicated. All the wicked things which people do to Christians, the threats, the lies, the slander, the gossip, will all be exposed on that final day of judgment. In Revelation 6, 9 through 10, we read this. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. Notice what they were killed for. Because they were preaching the word and maintaining a testimony. And they say this. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs want justice and the Lord will grant it. Men like Nero, who burned Christians alive at, you know, for garden parties, will pay the price. The captors of the Barnhams, who ransomed them, will eventually be defeated, even though they may never be caught in this lifetime. God will liberate the Barnhams because he paid the ransom for their soul. But their liberation is in great danger because they have continually lived in sin against God and persecuted the saints. We don't need to concern ourselves with retaliating, fighting for our Christian rights, making it easy to be a Christian in America as much as we need to be concerned about doing what God has commanded us to do. Not to be self-defense Christians, standing up for our rights, but to proclaim his name boldly in the midst of persecution. And knowing the certainty of justice should do exactly that, give us boldness. Philippians 1.28, Paul says in light of standing that we are to stand in no way alarmed by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Certainty and justice should lead us to boldly proclaim the gospel. And when we do that, when they mock us, when they make fun of us, and we take it like Christ did, not uttering anything in return, it is a convicting, condemning action where they realize that surely there is something greater to this man that would cause him to make a stand like this when there's no worldly reason for him to accept it. And our proclamation, our proclamation must be bold. Jesus speaks about what we hear whispered in secret, proclaim upon upon the rooftops. It's not so much that we wait for people to approach us, that we wait for people to knock at our door and say, I heard that you're a Christian. Could you please tell me how to convert? We are to take this message to the rooftops, the highest point in the city, looking down upon the masses where our voice will carry the furthest and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, to do it boldly, expecting final victory in the end. An NFL coach is also a Christian commented one time on why he finds more satisfaction being a Christian than he does being an NFL coach. And what he said was rather telling. He said, when I go out before a football game, I can't shake my fist at a hostile crowd and say, we win. But I can with Christ because we will. We can shake our fist at the world in certain victory knowing that in the end we will finally be vindicated. People who say that we're crazy for being missionaries, for living radically Christian lives, who aren't living and living it up, you know, eating, drinking, and being merry, will be vindicated because we demonstrated that what matters is eternity. 
See, the gospel is not a religious option. It is not a personal relationship. It is not one of many religions to choose from. It is the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Salvation is found in one name under heaven, Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible. And we are to proclaim the gospel boldly, like the command that it is. It's not an option, it's a command. God commands all men everywhere to repent. The people who are mocking you and scorning you and ignoring you, those people too are commanded to repent. And that is why we must do as Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We are not to be ashamed of it. We are not to be reticent and hesitant and scared, saying, You know, you ought to become a Christian sometime. We are to proclaim it boldly. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is a command. It's not my word. It's God's word. And God is coming back to judge you if you don't. It's not an option. We're not interfering with someone. We're not being impolite. We're not violating social norms. Those social norms we are violating have been set up by the world. And we obey those. We obey men. We obey the world system. And we obey Satan. That's it. We are to obey God rather than men and not let social norms and social decorum that say we can't talk about religion and politics to stifle the mandate which God has given us. Number three, we must preach the gospel boldly in light of judgment, well, in light of eternity, in light of persecution, but we must fear God more than people. And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. The key word here is phobeo, where we get phobia from, right? And it literally means to put to flight, terrify, and frighten. And we learn from the Bible that it's also the opposite of love. 1 John 4.18 states, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Now, if you've been attending the John studies, you also know that the opposite of love is selfishness. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not seek its own. So, the question is, how can love be selfishness, opposite of love be selfishness, and the opposite of love be fear? And the reason why is they're connected. See, love is wanting to give more than you get. Selfishness is wanting to get more than you can give. And fear is wanting to keep what you got, no matter the cost. You don't want to share. You're afraid of losing it. You fear losing something that's precious to you. And that's what Jesus talks about here. Don't fear those who can kill your body, right? Because when they kill the body, what happens to your soul? It goes up to heaven, right? And your body will join the two at the resurrection. And many of us fear. We may not fear death, but our fear comes out in other ways. For instance, we might say, well, you know, if I talk about the gospel, they might think I'm weird. You know, they might yell at me, or they might fire me, or, you know, they might not want to spend time with me. Now, notice a common thread in all those excuses. Me, me, me. It's all about me. And brothers and sisters, this is the most critical imperative you need to understand. If you will remember one thing from this message, remember this. 
The reason why you are scared to share the gospel is because you are selfish. The reason why you are afraid to share the gospel is because you are selfish. You would rather have someone endure the eternal torments of hell than not like you. You'd rather have them cast out of the glorious presence of our loving Father than think that they can take something from you. You would rather have them burn alive in the lake of fire because they might think you are weird. Now I have news for you. If you are a Christian, you are a stranger. And what's the first syllable of stranger? Strange. That's right. You are weird. You are strange. Expect it. But when you let the world and what you want from the world interfere with your mandate to obey God, you have some serious problems. And some of us might think, well, you know, I do share the gospel. And, you know, and it's easy to share the gospel with, let's say, homeless people or with uh, children, people that society says that we're better than, right? Yeah, they should fear us. We don't fear them because they're children after all, right? But when it comes to sharing the gospel with peers, with celebrities, that's where the fear of man comes in. That is when you fear God more than men. And the next warning that Jesus gives is, is very strong. He says, Fear him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. Now notice that fear is a command. You are not to fear man, but you are to fear God, who can continually kill us in hell, to continually destroy us. The fear of man demonstrates a disobedient heart. And in the words of John Piper, he says this about this text. But if he keeps silent, if you forsake the path of truth and fall in love with the praise of men, you could lose your very soul. And that you ought to fear. Now, can someone be a Christian and still embrace Allah? Can someone be a Christian and still worship Buddha? Why is that? Because he's an idol, right? Now, what is an idol? An idol is anything that you love more than God. An idol is something that you're willing to sin, you're willing to, to ignore and rebel against God to achieve. You're willing to sin to get, or and you're willing to sin, and you sin if you don't have it. And so the commandment that we have is that we need to share the gospel. But the reason why we don't do it is because we're afraid that men won't like us. Now, what's the idol in that case? It's you. The reason why you don't share your faith is because you want to be exalted in this element of pride. Remember how prideful people don't care about the lost? That's why. They don't care about their salvation. They're fine. That is an idol, and we need to repent of it. And we'll go more into that later. Now, knowing that when we share our faith, when we're bold, when we take a stand, we'll undoubtedly go through persecution. We need to follow the fourth command, which is to trust God's providential care. In verse 29 through 31, but not two, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore do not fear. You have more value than the sparrows. Now, the sparrow was equivalent to the modern bachelor staple of the hot dog. It was the cheapest piece of meat you could find. 
get two sparrows for a half a cent. And what Jesus argues is, if a sparrow's lifetime is appointed by God, if they don't die until God your Father allows it, and if God knows all the insignificant details about your life, including the numbers of the number of hair on your head, he'll take care of you too. We need to trust in God's providential care. If we obey him, he will take care of us. Now, if we were to go out and we were to share the gospel and we were to be bold, proclaim it at work in socially appropriate times, like your break or on your lunch hour or maybe afterwards, I mean, nonetheless, if you were to evangelize, they'll probably still try to forbid it, right? Because you're breaking in disunity among the co-workers. You might think to yourself, now, if I lose my job for sharing the gospel, how am I going to uh, provide for my family? Doesn't God want me to provide for my family? Well, think about it. God feeds the sparrows, right? He'll feed your family. God takes care of the sparrows. He'll take care of you. Where do you think your money comes from? Right? Where does your money come from? Who gave you that job to begin with? See, God gave you all of those things. And if you're afraid you might lose it, so you disobey God, you're demonstrating that you believe that you give yourself all these things and not God. And you look at what is our primary occupation here on earth. Is it to be a lawyer or is it to be a banker or a teacher or a real estate agent? Our primary job here on earth is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were an auto mechanic and you had a yard full of broken cars that you were supposed to fix, and after a week you never fixed one of them, what would happen to you? You get fired, right? Because you're not doing your job. And we tend to think that I'm a banker first and a Christian second, but it's just the opposite. We're disciples of Christ first, and we're a banker to pay the bills. If we're silent about the gospel, we are disobeying our number one occupation and our real job. We get caught up in worldly endeavors. We get caught up in having that extra car, getting the addition to the house, getting a larger house, not living in an apartment. That we forsake our true duty and we stop living for eternity. We must share the gospel, even if it costs us professional advancement, because God will still take care of us. We may not have the standard of life that we wanted, but we'll have the standard of God, standard that God appointed for us. Then you might think, well, I won't have an effective ministry because I'll be fired, I'll be away from those people. Anytime you suffer, it adds power to the proclamation, right? Because it's a sign of condemnation to them, but of salvation to you. If you get fired for sharing the good news, what that sense of message is, you are unwilling to water down the gospel because you believe in its message. Another uh, rationale might be, well, my life uh, might be in danger, and for that matter, the life of my family. If I'm a missionary in Sudan or Indonesia, my kids might get killed. That's foolish. Now, if God appointed the lifespan of the sparrow, do you think he appointed the lifespan of your children? Do you think he appointed, do you think that you'll live one day longer if you're in Indonesia versus America? It's not the environment. It's not the circumstances. It's God who determines how long you live. And if you die early, you die early because that was part of God's plan. Now the thing is, don't worry about taking care of your life. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? And he'll take care of you in the end. See, ultimately, we must not fear fear man. We must not fear circumstances. 
But we must realize the sobering reality of this commandment and minister in light of judgment. And this brings us to our final point, point number five in verses 32 and 33. Everyone who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. J.C. Ryle notes about this verse. If you want him to acknowledge them and confess them before his Father's throne, they must not be ashamed to acknowledge him before this world. To do it may cost us much. It may bring us laughter, mockery, persecution, and scorn. But let us not be laughed out of heaven. Let us recollect the great dreadful day of account. And let us not be afraid to show men that we love Christ and we want them to know and love him also. The idea of this verse is to take an open stand for God in front of men. For the disciples and men that they publicly proclaimed him from house to house. And when they were put on trial when people have forced them to give an account about whether or not they embraced Christ as Messiah, they declared yes. It wasn't when they just asked. The reason why they were on trial to begin with was because they were obedient to the command and the context of this passage, which was to repeatedly and continually proclaim the faith from the housetops and the rooftops. Now, 62 days from now, I'll be standing probably right around here, facing my lovely bride wearing a, a nice red velvet tuxedo. She gave me permission to get anyone I wanted to with the roughly things. And Jack is going to ask me a question. Dave, do you promise to love, honor, cherish Becky till death do you part? Now what would happen if I were to just stand there in silence for about a minute? Yeah, Becky's hand would probably be released and slap me until I get an answer, right? <laughs> but what if but what if I were to say, well, why not? <laughs> or I guess. Or right? What Becky is looking for is a bold declaration of my love. At a strong answer to the affirmative, yes, definitely, I'll bet my life on it. And that is what God is looking for. Anything short of that is denial. And if you confess before God, he will confess you in heaven. And, and Thomas Watson reasons, if Christ appears for us in heaven, then we must appear for him upon the earth. Christ is not ashamed to carry our names on his breast, and shall we be ashamed of his truth? Does he plead our cause, and shall we not stand up for his cause? What a might argument is this, to stand up for the honor of Christ in times of apostasy. Christ is interceding for us. Does he present our names in heaven, and shall not we profess his name upon the earth? If Christ confesses us before God, we are to confess him before our Father and before men, right? Now the opposite of confession is denial. And so the question we must ask, what is denial? And then we'll look into the consequences. I remember being a new Christian, coming back uh, to, to my hometown in Kansas from a year of becoming a Christian and really become a, a real fanatical Christian in college. In fact, my, my uh, friends who were ardent intellectual atheists decided that it was going to be their project to convert Dave back to his former self since, in their words, I became a Bible thumper from hell. 
And to a certain extent, I mean, I'll admit, I was kind of obnoxious. I was very zealous. But I wanted them to know the Lord. And in the midst of that summer, I underwent a lot of persecution, people making fun of me from all fronts, even, even people very close to me. And there are these two girls who were also Christians too who would just kind of come alongside and kind of encourage me and they let me know that they were Christians too. Well, one day, I went over to a friend's house and the whole group of us were together and we watched a real terrible movie that my friend Azure picked out. It was one of those inner city violent gang movies that kind of leaves you really depressed and realizing that there is no hope for the inner city. And I told my friend Azure, Azure... Um, this wasn't really the best party movie to bring. I mean, it's not Princess Bride or anything. Because it was a real downer on the rest of the party. And as you're being the future politician that he is, says, Dave, it's an excellent party movie because we need to have all these government policies. And he goes on for five minutes talking about all these government programs he read in Time magazine that need to be implemented to solve this problem. And so everyone was there, and including all my atheist friends. And for some insane reason, I, I said, as you're... Those people don't need big government. What they need is Jesus Christ. And at that moment, the whole room was deathly silent. It was like a tomb. And everyone just turned to me, and you almost saw the daggers just flash in their eyes as they were enraged. And they proceeded to mock me, make fun of me, argue. And I was there defending the faith. And my two friends were in the corner. And you know what they did? They got up and they walked out of the room and they abandoned me. I don't think I ever felt betrayed in my life like I did like that at that point in time. They denied. Now, fortunately, they repented and they told me they felt ashamed and, you know, they're walking with God right now, but that's what it means to deny. To deny is to be silent. To deny is to say, no, I, I have nothing to do with them. To deny is to water down the gospel so it doesn't really mean anything. It's my personal faith, but you know it's okay for you, right? That's not the true gospel. But we live in a day and age where people try to intimidate us, where they try to stop us from doing what God wants us to do, and we find ourselves committing the sin of Peter, right? Peter denied Christ three times and said, I know nothing of that man. I have nothing to do with him. But you know what he did? He repented. And how do we know he repented? Because the same man preached the gospel boldly in Acts 2 to thousands of people. He underwent persecution, shame, suffering, and scorn and died a martyr. He repented. There is one way to repent from not sharing your faith, and that is to actually share your faith. So we have a, a lot of these commands that we have here to do not expect a better reception than our master, to possess an eternal perspective, to fear God more than men, to minister in light of God's providence and to minister in light of judgment. I have five applications for you. One, you need to repent of sharing your faith. If it is because of fear, you need to repent of selfishness and ask what other manifestations of selfishness do you see in your heart. Make a list of five people and pray for their salvation and pray that you'll be the one who will be able to bring the gospel to them. Take the evangelism class. That's being offered this Thursday at 7 o'clock in B3. Call my secretary, make an appointment, and be equipped to share your faith. The reason why we do it is we can. And it's interesting because mainly new Christians take this. 
And a lot of us who have been seasoned in the faith don't really think that we need help evangelizing, but we do. We do. Four, talk to strangers. We live in a very paranoid society where if you look at somebody in the eye and say hi, they scurry off, run into their apartment, and lock the doors, right? So strike up conversations. Try to talk with them. When you're at the baseball game, talk to the parents. Invite them to church. Invite them to listen to you know, over for dinner and share the gospel with them. And finally, just do it. The key way to repent of the sin of not sharing our faith is to actually share it. There's no other way to repent, right? To forsake our ways and do God's ways. Now, there is a very chilling section that I haven't addressed yet at the end of this verse. It says, But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That is a very chilling warning. If you deny Christ before men, you're going to come up to heaven. We'll have two people, one who confessed Christ. You're going to come up into heaven. God's going to ask them to give an account of their life, and they're going to be blah, blah, blah. But because they confessed God here on earth and confessed Christ, Christ is going to come to their side. He's going to be their advocate. And he's going to say, This man was faithful in proclaiming the gospel and obedient to my commandments. He had a changed life. He repented of his sin, and he lived for me and proclaimed the majesties of our kingdom. Let him in, Father, and God will let him in. But to the person who goes to church, who doesn't share his faith, who keeps silent, will be, that person will be looking to Jesus, and Jesus will just be in the corner, just as silent as they were on earth when they were silent about him. There'll be no advocate. There'll be no someone coming alongside other than the, the solemn and shameful words of apart from me that you who practice iniquity. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel is not an option. The Bible knows nothing of Christians who don't share their faith. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Heavenly Father. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Heavenly Father. Whether you die or you confess, and people should not be surprised that you are a Christian. And not just a Christian as opposed to a Jew, but a fundamentalist, evangelical, born-again Christian who believes you must repent or perish. Don't let the world intimidate you. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who will destroy the soul if you disobey. And in the meantime, think about what would happen to this church if we took this command seriously. And all of us, not just the evangelism pastor, and not just the people with the spiritual gift of evangelism, started to boldly proclaim the gospel and we saw people get saved. What if we got persecuted? Think about the joy that we'd have as we cling to our Father for intimacy and support and comfort during this time. That'll happen if we obey. But it all starts where us as a church and you individually repents and you start sharing the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the message and the firm, strong words which you give us. And Lord, I pray for all of us who have denied you before men, who have pulled a Peter. Lord, we thank you that you forgave Peter. Lord, that Peter repented, that he turned to you, and that he was boldly proclaiming your gospel till his death. And may we do the same thing. 
May we be like Peter. May we seek your forgiveness. And may we be public witnesses. May we be lights and and the salt of the earth and proclaim your life-changing message. When we pray for anyone here who does not know the gospel, we pray that one of us here will share the gospel with them. We pray that they'll know that they need to trust in Christ alone, that Jesus is the only way to God, and they must have faith and repentance to enter heaven. Give us opportunities to share our faith. Challenge us. Test us, Lord. And Lord, when that moment comes, when we have an opportunity, may we not cower. May we not be selfish. But may we be selfless and love them and love you by proclaiming the gospel boldly. In Jesus' name, amen.